Chapter Twenty Nine of the Forgery by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Nine. It was a fine summer afternoon when a carriage and four, a thing by no means uncommon in those days, though as rare as a bustard at present, dashed into the small town of Belford at that sort of pace which shows well-paid postboys, if not well-fed horses. I find, by a statistical account of that part of Europe which lies between the Alne and the Tweed, and which in former days was frequently subjected to the inundation from the great northern reservoir of moss troopers, that, under the beneficial influence of a more civilised state of society, the small town of Belford had increased and prospered till, on the day of which I am writing, it was computed to contain no less than one hundred and seventy-three houses and nine hundred and forty-seven inhabitants. The greater proportion of the inhabitants possessed no stockings and very few shoes. I say the greater proportion, for it had been an immemorial privilege of that portion of the citizens of Belford, which had not yet attained the age of fourteen, to wear upon their legs and feet the covering with which nature had provided them and none else some of the higher classes with that neglect of their rights which they often show had suffered the privilege above mentioned to fall into desuetude the children of the clergyman always and of the presbyterian minister sometimes wore shoes and stockings so also did those of the doctor the lawyer the two principal shopkeepers and the landlord of the inn but all or very nearly all the rest adhered to their right with strong determination and after the carriage ran a multitude of boys and girls whose feet had never been tightened and spoiled by compression in cotton or leather it was not indeed that the climate of belford was particularly like that of eden which dispensed as we all know with the necessity of any great superfluity of garments on the contrary the north wind visited it fresh from home so much so as to have generated a despair of cultivation which after efforts have proved to be very unreasonable andrew fairservice's crop of early nettles gave in those days a very fair specimen of the sort of horticulture practised at belford and not very many years before the period of my tale an old woman used to walk through the town with a basket on her arm crying at different seasons of the year the following rare and in many instances unknown fruits the names of which be it remarked i give in her own peculiar dialect though i cannot convey to the reader any idea of the tone something between a song and a squeal in which she offered her produce to the public hips haws sleys and bummelberries cherries ripe groziers nipes turnips sweet as honey were the sounds she uttered and in them consisted very nearly the whole catalogue of fruit brought to market at belford notwithstanding all this the town contained a very good and respectable inn where at one time were no fewer than sixteen pair of post-horses as in that period it was generally made the first stage northward from Alnwick. Rather a long one, it is true, being charged fifteen miles, 
but many persons preferred it to charlton bells must certainly have acted in very important part in the history of former times as they rival the most distinguished personages and the most splendid objects in the traditionary veneration of innkeepers and neither hearts nor hinds black bulls nor red lions dolphins nor fountains bushes nor cocks great generals nor gold and silver crosses can boast a great number of votaries nay not even the crown the sun or the moon the image of a large bell then painted in blue and lipped and rimmed with gold served as a sign to the principal inn at belford and underneath its auspicious bulk drew up the carriage on the day i have mentioned horses on sir asked the ostler running out and addressing one of the smart-looking six feet and a half high footmen at the back of the carriage the man made no reply and mine host of the bell seeing his ostler repulsed advanced to the door of the vehicle while the two servants got slowly down and demanded in a most deferential tone if he should put on four more quadrupeds to hurry on the handsome post-chariot toward the north he looked in too with some degree of curiosity but whatever he expected to see nothing was perceived within excepting always a lady's maid but a very pretty-looking girl apparently twenty or one-and-twenty years of age with a gay bright sparkling countenance and a crimson velvet four-cornered polish cap bound with rich sable fur and ornamented with a tassel no i thank you said the lady be so good as to open the door i shall stay here to-night let me see what rooms you have got where's your wife i suppose you have got a wife the innkeeper informed her that her supposition was correct and shouted very loudly for mrs gunnell while the carriage door was opened and the servants assisted their mistress to alight had i better go and see the rooms my lady said the maid more for the purpose of announcing her mistress's rank to the numerous bystanders than with the hope of saving trouble for she well knew the lady would see the rooms herself and with all reverence mrs gunnell led the way for the unexpected guest up the stairs through the corridors and into the different rooms while mr gunnell followed descanting upon the excellence of the beds and the comfortableness of the accommodation this room for myself that little one for my maid the large one beyond for a lady who will be here in an hour or two and all the rest of the house for my servants said the young lady in a very princessly way oh this is the sitting-room i suppose she continued entering an adjoining chamber and sitting down in a great armchair covered with white dimity i wish it had not been so long and a little broader mr gunnell she continued eyeing the host from head to foot mr gunnell certainly did think her the oddest lady he had ever seen but it is wonderful what an impression oddity joined with wealth and station makes upon the great mass of human beings as i have said elsewhere strength of character is the most commanding of all things and it is probably the latent conviction that a man must have strength of character to be odd which renders oddity so impressive very sorry my lady replied mr gunnell with the most profound respect but it is the only one we have got except a very little one at the end of the passage and the commercial room downstairs it will do it will do mr gunnell said his pretty guest 
playing with a gold pencil case which she had got chained around her wrist. Now, tell me something about yourself. How old are you, Mr. Gunnell? Lord, my lady, exclaimed the landlady, if Gunnell tells you that, he will tell you more than he ever would tell me in his life. Well, I don't want to embarrass him, answered the young lady with a smile. But I'll put another question, which shall do as well. How long have you been in this house, Mr. Gunnell? Oh, as to that, my lady, replied the landlord, I have kept the bell three and twenty years come next twelfth of October. My times are sadly altered since I first set up. Oh, yes, replied the young lady, they are always altering. But now, Mr. Gunnell, have fresh horses put to my carriage to take me first to Detchton Grieve, and then to Belford Castle to wait and bring me back. Have dinner ready for me and the lady who will be here in an hour or two at half past seven, and in the meantime collect whatever you have got in the shape of upholsterers and cabinet makers, and let them know that I shall have some orders to give them to night. Bless my heart, said the landlord. If I don't think it is Lady Anne Mellant, we shall be so happy to see somebody at the old place again. Why, my lady, it is just ten years and three or four months since your ladyship's grandfather died, and not a soul has lived in the castle since but old Mrs. Grimes and her two daughters. I know that, Mr. Gunnell, said Lady Anne, rather gravely, but I doubt not that you will soon see it inhabited again during a part of every year. Now, order the horses and have the things ready, as I have directed. My servants will put the place in order here while I am away. In about ten minutes Lady Anne was once more in her carriage, now disencumbered of its packages, and, with one manservant behind, was rolling away towards the place which she had mentioned, called Detchen Grieve. At the distance of about three miles from Belford, the carriage left the high road and turned into a narrow country lane, about half a mile up which appeared a pair of iron gates. Passing through these, Lady Anne saw before her a very broad, smooth, hard road, well kept, but displaying no trace of cart or carriage wheels. This road descended a gentle slope of park meadow, and then plunged in between two dark masses of old gigantic trees, through which it continued its course for nearly half a mile. When it issued forth again, another wide open space of hill-turf was spread out to the eye, dotted here and there with clumps of large trees, and at a little distance in advance rose a mansion, by no means equal in appearance to that which the extent and beauty of the park would have led ones to expect. It was a brick-built house of ancient date, very irregular in its form, with gables here and gables there, and large stacks of chimneys placed in the most extraordinary positions. The windows were small but innumerable, and at one side of the house rose a tall, square, brick tower, very much like the tower of an old Kentish church, in great part covered with ivy. Up to the front of this building dashed the carriage at a great rate, in the midst of a scene so still and solitary that, but for the house, one might have fancied the place a desert. The sound of a great deep-toned bell soon brought to the door an old-fashioned manservant with a powdered head, silk stockings, and lace garters round his knees, and in answer to Lady Anne's question, if Mr. Hargrave was at home, 
he replied in the affirmative the young lady then alighted and followed the man through a stone hall past some ten or twelve doors to a small one which gave her admission into a little study half filled with books and old pieces of armour the servant merely saying as he threw open the door a lady wishes to speak with you sir the personage to whom this was addressed deserves some description for i do not think there is one of the genus left he was at the time of which i speak at the age of sixty-eight or sixty-nine so that his youthful memories must have referred to a period considerably anterior to the close of the last century whether he was clinging to these youthful memories or a particular taste of his own which guided the old gentleman in his choice of dress i do not well know but certainly it was very different from anything that lady anne was accustomed to see his coat besides its unusual cut was distinguished by the material which was of uncut velvet and by the colour which was of a yellowish green his hair was powdered and drawn back into a large mass behind which was bound round and round with a black ribbon two large well-powdered curls appeared above the ears but the forehead was left completely bare his waistcoat was of white satin richly embroidered and his knee-breeches as well as his stockings were of black silk while in the shoes and at the knees were richly cut gold buckles in short he looked like a man who had been laid up in a bandbox for fifty years and taken out as he had been put in ready dressed for a ceremony no glance of recognition beamed in mr hargrave's eyes as they lighted on lady anne and he scanned her curiously through the spectacles with which his face was usually adorned as the reader knows his visitor was no great respecter of ceremonies ever acting or speaking upon the first impulse and taking it for granted that whatever she said or did was sure to please partly from a conviction of her own sincerity of purpose and partly from having always found that her oddities were very successful with the general world and more especially with elderly gentlemen lady anne therefore took a quiet and somewhat long survey of the person before her till he not very well satisfied with the scrutiny demanded in a gay and lively tone a touch of the paternal mingling with a sort of light badinage which was the mode in his early years well my little girl what do you want with me here is your humble servant at your disposal in every respect but love or matrimony lady anne understood him in a moment and seating herself in the armchair opposite she replied were it a case of either love or matrimony i probably should not seek you mr hargrave but the case is quite the reverse i have come to see you upon business of some importance you do not know me but i know you and what i desire you to do is to get into the carriage with me and take a drive of twelve or thirteen miles nay more you must do it whether you like it or not the old gentleman looked at her with an expression of amusement and then said do you know i have not dined nor i answered lady anne though i wonder at you for the men who wore velvet coats always dined at three or four o'clock but you know my good friend that ladies always have their own way and so i intend you to dine with me to-day wherever i am i always arrange everything for everybody 
according to my own plan and though people are frightened at the beginning they are always very well pleased in the end i assure you so now tell your servant to bring you your rock law and your hat is it round or cocked do you know you are very saucy said mr hargrave in reply where do you intend to take me what do you intend to do with me i shall tell you nothing about it replied lady anne i intended to be a clear case of abduction in order that an action may lie and may be decided upon the merits i will say and do nothing which can raise the slightest technical quibble but direct you immediately to get your hat and cloak and if you do not make haste i shall give you sufficient cause to swear that you go in personal fear that will depend upon the nature of the vehicle rejoined mr hargrave who seemed perfectly to enter into her humour is it an open carriage or a shut is it a dog-cart a jig a phaeton a landau a coach or a post-chaise neither the one nor the other replied lady anne it is my own travelling carriage and you shall be at full liberty to drop into the corner and fall sound asleep or to talk to me the whole way as your courtesy may decide but how far how far exclaimed the other that at least you can tell me why as far as milford castle answered lady anne with a gay and good-humoured smile but we shall be back in plenty of time for dinner so you shall not lose the meal which no englishman can go without milford castle exclaimed the old gentleman what lady anne come and give me a kiss no you must come for it replied lady anne five years ago i would have given you one but you did not come to london to seek it and now you must take it if you want it the old gentleman rose from his seat and with a light and elastic step crossed over and kissed her cheek my dear child he said i am really glad to see you i was a friend of your father and your grandfather and a sort of connecting harmonizing link between them being some fifteen years younger than the one and some eighteen years older than the other i was the mediator when they quarrelled which i am sorry to say was not unfrequently and although i am and always have been a man of the old while your father was a man of the new world i believe he had as much confidence in me as in any man and a great regard for me likewise he wanted me to be one of your guardians but inveterate habit my dear child ties me to this seclusion and i knew i must either neglect duties which it would be criminal to neglect or break through rules which at my age it would be no longer graceful to abandon the spirit and essence of englishism if i may so call it that which marks our distinctive character and which renders all we do so progressive and at the same time so permanent is the system or principle or habit call it what you will of small communities acting together in some things separate from in other things dependent upon the great mass of the nation our municipal institutions are but better organized types of that which exists even in country districts where round a few men of property and intelligence whose duty it is to maintain order and peace and as far as in them lies to spread happiness and prosperity around them are collected a multitude of persons of various grades of wealth and intellect 
who have a right to look to those above them for advice, assistance, protection, and support. Now, no man, placed by God's will in the position of a country gentleman, has any title to abstract himself from the mass amidst which God's will has planted him, and whom his influence, his custom, his example, his advice, may benefit. I felt that I ought not to undertake the discharge of any duties incompatible with those which heaven had assigned me, and therefore I declined to be one of your guardians, though I must ever retain a sincere affection for all your family. I'm sure you do, Mr. Hargrave, replied Lady Anne, and therefore, in my impudent way, I came boldly to see you. I think you were quite right not to undertake the guardianship of a giddy girl when you had duties so much more important to perform and I only wish all our country gentlemen entertained such views of their duties. However, I must now seriously ask you to drive over with me to Milford Castle, as I have something to do there which may require the presence of a magistrate. I am ready this moment, said Mr. Hargrave, ringing the bell. Well then, countermand your dinner, said Lady Anne, for I am determined that you shall dine with me. "'I have not dined out of my own house for six or seven years,' replied the old gentleman, "'and it will be a long way back at night from Milford.' "'Oh, that is not where you are going to dine at all,' answered his fair visitor. "'I have taken the whole inn at Belford, and although an inn dinner may not afford many attractions, yet, let me tell you, my own cook will be down in an hour, and, depend upon it, he will not be content.' to see chickens roasted to a rag, and raw beefsteaks set before his mistress, even in Northumberland. Tomorrow I shall take up my headquarters at Milford. Upholsterers, carpenters, cabinet-makers will be as busy as ants till three or four o'clock, and about five I expect a great number of people down, who will make the old place cheerful again, after the long reign of solitude and dullness. I will therefore take no denial, for I have a great deal to talk to you about before these people come down, and I have nobody with me now but my good old governess, whose presence will be no impediment. Mr. Hargrave's hat and cloak were then brought, and after having, much to the astonishment of the servants, announced that he should not be home to dinner, he followed Lady Anne to her carriage and set out for Milford Castle. As they drove along, the worthy old man was somewhat anxious to ascertain what Lady Anne could want with a magistrate at Milford, but his fair companion seemed to be in one of her wayward moods, and would give him no information whatsoever. The moment that he found she was reluctant, with the true courtesy of the old school, he changed the conversation, and, notwithstanding a great degree of oddity, and very peculiar views on many points, proved anything but an unpleasant companion. He spoke of the county in which he lived, the changes which had taken place in it during his own lifetime, the progress which it was making, and the improvements which still might be made. Lady Anne was a good deal surprised at the liberality and extensive view which he displayed, in conjunction with his partial adherence to old habits, even in insignificant things. But Mr. Hargrave was a man of a singular mind, one of the few who judged of all things solely upon their merits. He did not think that anything was worthy of being retained because it was old, or adopted because it was new. 
and he accidentally explained to his fair companion his views of all those alterations which people in general are too apt to look upon as progress when very often the direct reverse is the case that which is my dear lady he said has always one great direct advantage over that which may be certainty long experience of anything existing has shown mankind all its benefits and all its evils but besides this there is an indirect advantage in retaining that which is namely that it has adjusted itself to the things by which it is surrounded and there is a direct disadvantage in change namely that one can never calculate what derangements of all relations may take place from any alteration of even one small part in the complicated machine of any state or society nevertheless i hold that when it has been shown that many things have altered with or against our will general alterations must take place to readjust the relations which have been changed and also that when in favour of any change that is proposed there can be shown a reasonable probability of advantages sufficient to counterbalance the inherent evils of change we are fully justified in taking the forward step and may hope to reap benefit by it if we change for the mere sake of change we are frenchmen if we remain stationary from mere attachment to old customs we are chinese i think that the english nation is better than either neither like youth greedy of novelty nor like age tenacious of prejudices but like maturity guided by reason either in tranquillity or action the saucy girl beside him laughed i have no doubt it's all very true she said but i am not a politician and really do not much care my dear sir whether we stand still go forward or go backward it will make no more difference to me than whether you wear a velvet coat or a cloth one mr hargrave now laughed in turn and looking down at his sleeves he said this is velvet isn't it well my dear i did not know it i have remarked indeed occasionally that my dress is somewhat different from that of other people and now i will tell you how it has happened a great number of years ago some fifty i dare say i was just as full of fancies and vanities as you or any other young person of the present time and perhaps was a little bit of a bow and might affect some singularity of apparel i can talk of the matter very coolly now for age has extinguished passions and softened even bitter memories i met with a very painful disappointment a young lady to whom i was sincerely attached and who i believe was sincerely attached to me died in a moment on the very morning appointed for our marriage i bore the bereavement i am sorry to say neither as a christian nor as a philosopher and i soon found that if i went on mingling with the world as the idle and light portion of society is generally called i should lose what little senses i still possessed i determined to make a great struggle and a great struggle it was i applied myself to the most important subjects i could find out or devise i studied divinity i visited the poor i visited hospitals i visited prisons for ten years i would never suffer my mind to rest even for one moment upon what i considered a trifle and my directions about my clothes whenever i wanted anything new 
were to make them exactly like those which I was wearing. At the end of these ten years, when my object was gained and my mind had somewhat recovered its tone, I did perceive that my dress was somewhat old-fashioned, but I thought it was not worth while to change, and I have never given any fresh directions since. Thus, at any time during the last fifty years, you would have seen me in a coat of exactly the same cut, of the same colour, and of the same texture. Four times in the year it comes in regularly, is placed upon the clothes-horse in my room, and I put it on, often without knowing that it is new, unless it pinches me under the arms. I certainly shall not change it now, because nobody would know me if I did, for one's face forms so small a part of one's personal appearance that old Hargrave's coat and waistcoat are much more easily recognised, I fancy, than old Hargrave's eyes and nose would be. "'You're a dear old man,' said Lady Anne, "'and I love you, velvet coat and all.' "'I'm glad to hear it,' replied Mr. Hargrave, "'for I have loved all your family, my dear, very truly.' In such sort of conversation passed the time, till at length a pair of great gates appeared, and the carriage rolled through into the park. "'This is Milford Castle, my dear,' said Mr. Hargrave, "'and I wish you joy on your first visit to the home of your ancestors. "'I am afraid, however, you will find some marks of neglect, "'at all events, on the outside of the house, "'for a master's eye is like sunshine, and his absence like storm. "'The one produces all that is bright and beautiful.' "'the other is sure to leave some traces of devastation.' "'It is very bare,' said Lady Anne, looking out of the windows of the carriage, "'and how stunted all the trees look, leaning to one side "'as if they had a great inclination to lay themselves down and die.' "'The prevailing wind,' said Mr. Hargrave, "'which morally and physically bends all things to its influence, "'has beaten upon them for so many years that they may well have yielded to it.' "'but you will find the scenery improve as we go on. "'We are merely at the outskirts of the park. "'Do you not see that deep wood filling up the hollow? "'That is the first grove. "'This is merely a sort of wild chase we are passing through.' "'Rolling on, the scenery did, as he said, improve greatly, "'and from time to time Lady Anne Mellant caught a distant glimpse "'of an old grey mansion, seen and lost alternately.' as the carriage mounted or descended the manifold slopes of the park. At the end of a quarter of an hour, a thick, wild wood cut off the view of all other objects, and in a minute or two more the postboys put their horses into a quick canter up a steep rise, and Lady Anne suddenly found herself at the gates of her father's house. It may well be supposed that she gazed at it with interest, and the aspect pleased her well for it was a large, stately, dignified-looking mansion, with manifold doors and windows, and a broad terrace before it. But on looking into the park, she was somewhat mortified to see that several hundred acres of ground around the house had been lightly enclosed, and, though various herds of deer could be perceived in the distance, nothing but sheep, rather too numerous for the pasture allotted to them, appeared in the foreground. The servant rang the bell sharply, and having opened the carriage door by Lady Anne's directions, aided his mistress to descend. She was very grave, and indeed it is hardly possible to look up at an old building, 
especially when it has been the habitation of our own immediate ancestors, without feeling impressed with a chilling sense of the vanity of human hopes, desires, and efforts. An old mansion is a sort of cemetery of dead aspirations, every stone a memento of joys and wishes passed away. Of course, nobody answered the bell, but a shepherd lad was seen running towards the back of the house, and Lady Anne forbade the footman to ring again. After a minute or two of expectation, a large maid, bustling woman opened the great doors with a face glowing like the rising sun, and hands which she continued to wipe on her apron, evidently in a very pulpy and washerwoman-like state. She looked at the handsome carriage, the arms it bore, the livery of the servant, and concluded she had the heiress before her. But still, not to seem too ready, she demanded, "'What's your will, sir? What do you wish, ma'am?' "'I wish to go over the house, my good lady,' replied Lady Anne. "'I suppose you are Mrs. Grimes. I am Lady Anne Mellant, your mistress.' "'Dear me, my lady, I wish you had let me know you were coming,' said the good woman. "'Why, there's nothing in order for your ladyship, and we have nobody to help to put things right.' "'Lord, sir, I didn't know you,' she continued, turning to Lady Anne's companion. "'You are Mr. Hargrave, I believe.' "'I wonder you did not know me,' replied the old gentleman dryly, looking down at the sleeve of his velvet coat. "'I am always ticketed, but do not keep Lady Anne standing here.' "'Do not make yourself uneasy, Mrs. Grimes,' said Lady Anne. "'I have not come to stay to-day.' "'but I shall walk over the whole house to judge what is necessary to be done. "'Be so good as to show me the way. "'Come after me, Matthews.' "'Mrs. Grimes was evidently taken very much by surprise, "'and by no means prepared to receive the lady of the house, "'for, to say the truth, she had converted the servants' hall into a wash-house "'and was actually engaged in washing and ironing for her own and the steward's family.' while her two nieces and two country girls in consequence of the first hint of the shepherd lad were busily engaged in effacing as far as possible the traces of their occupation mrs grimes led the young lady into the large old-fashioned hall on the left of the entrance and made great ado to open the windows the assistance of the man-servant however rendered the process shorter than she desired and Lady Anne stood in the midst, gazing round at the old pictures upon the walls, the stately black oak chairs, and the enormous mantelpiece with its cupids and columns and baskets of fruit, all carved in white marble. "'Where does that door lead to?' demanded Lady Anne. "'To the great drawing-room, my lady,' replied Mrs. Grimes, with a low curtsy, "'and beyond that is the little drawing-room, and then the great dining-room, on the other side of the entrance hall are the library and the breakfast-room, and the little library. "'There is a small dressing-room,' said Lady Anne Mellant, "'adjoining the bedroom in which my father slept when he was here. "'Do you know which that is?' "'Oh, yes, my lady,' replied Mrs. Grimes. "'It's the dressing-room that has what we call the sealed cabinet in it, "'for there is a great piece of parchment nailed across the doors, with seals over the nails.' "'Exactly,' said Lady Anne. "'Take my servant with you, open the windows of that room, and then come back to show me the way.' As soon as the woman and the footman had retired, 
Lady Anne took a letter from her pocket and placed it in Mr. Hargrave's hand, saying very gravely, "'You have wondered, I dare say, my dear sir, why I brought you hither. Read that letter, which my poor father left to be given to me after his death. You will therein see that it may be needful that I shall have someone with me to witness the fact of my opening this cabinet, and to certify what are the contents that I found in it.' I could apply to no one so well as to a magistrate, an old friend of my father's and my grandfather's, and one universally respected. Mr. Hargrave took the letter, which had evidently been written some years, and looked at the back which bore the following words, To be delivered to my daughter, Lady Anne Mellant, when she attains the age of twenty, or previous to her marriage if she should marry before attaining that age. It is my wish that she should read it when alone. The old gentleman then opened it and read it near the window, pausing every now and then to consider the contents, and while he was doing so Mrs. Grimes re-entered the room, saying, The windows are open, my lady. Well, wait without for a minute or two, said Lady Anne, and then turned her eyes again to the face of Mr. Hargrave, who continued to read. When he had done, he folded up the letter again and returned it, saying, Part of the facts mentioned in that letter, my dear, I suspected long ago, from varying circumstances which came to my knowledge, but as I suppose there is no chance of your title being disputed, I think your precaution in bringing an old gentleman with you was unnecessary. I wished to take every reasonable precaution, replied his fair companion with a smile, and as, to tell you the truth, my dear sir, another person may be very much affected by my acts, I thought it but right to be sure of what I was doing. Oh, ho! said Mr. Hargrave, laughing. Then I am afraid I have no chance for this fair hand. You are too late in the field, answered Lady Anne gaily. But come, let us to the cabinet. Stay, I must have pen and ink first, said Mr. Hargrave. But pen and ink were not very easily procured at Milford Castle, for Mrs. Grimes was not of an epistolary turn, and her accounts were kept upon a slate. One of her nieces, however, supplied the deficiency, and ascending the long, broad, oaken staircase, Lady Anne and Mr. Hargrave followed the housekeeper to a small dressing-room adjoining the principal bedrooms. I would not be the man over whose heart a feeling of sad and solemn interest does not steal, when for the first time he enters a chamber once tenanted by a friend departed. I, though long years may have passed since the remembered form darkened the sunshine on the floor, with him, if there be such a man, affections must be written in water, or the heart be unsusceptible of love. Such was not the case with Lady Anne Mellant, nor with her old companion, and they both paused in the midst of the room and thought for a time of those whom they could never see more. The old man's tears were dried up, but he saw a drop gathering in Lady Anne's eyes, and laying his hand tenderly upon hers, he said, "'Come, my dear,' and led her towards the large old ebony cabinet which stood between the windows." Across the two folding doors, just above the lock, was a broad strip of parchment, sealed on either side with the arms of the earls of Milford, and upon the parchment was written, 
to be opened only by my daughter, Milford. For the late Earl, though he died at Harley Lodge, had felt when he last visited Milford that the sand in the hourglass was for him waning fast. Lady Anne approached the cabinet and with her own hand removed the parchment. She then, with a small key, which had remained ever since her father's death attached to her watch-chain, opened the doors, while Mr. Hargraves beckoned up Mrs. Grimes and the footman, saying, "'Come a little nearer and bear witness that I place my name upon every paper found in this cabinet.' Only one packet, however, was found therein. Most of the drawers were totally empty, but at length in a small drawer fitted up with ink-glasses and pen-cases, a bundle of four or five pages was found, which Sir Hargrave untied, and without looking at the contents of any, placed his signature upon each document, certifying that it had been found by Lady Anne Mellant in his presence, in a certain cabinet referred to in a letter from Frederick, Earl of Milford, in her possession, and that the cabinet had not been previously opened since it had been sealed by the late Earl. This being completed, Lady Anne begged her old companion to keep possession of the papers, at least till they arrived at the inn, and then once more closing the cabinet, she left the room. Her spirits seemed to rise now that the task was over, and she went on gaily and lightly from chamber to chamber, causing all the windows to be thrown wide open, commenting upon everything she saw, and asking a multitude of questions to all of which Mrs. Grimes had not very satisfactory answers ready. When she had gone over the whole house, somewhat to the amusement and somewhat to the fatigue of good Mr. Hargrave, she sat herself down in one of the great richly gilt armchairs which stood in the principal drawing-room, and exclaimed laughingly, "'Now, like Alexander Selkirk, I am monarch of all I survey. But like him, too, my dear sir, I lack subject, sadly.' "'Send someone for the steward, Mrs. Grimes, "'and to guard against all the many contingencies, "'some of which are always happening in the country. "'If the steward should not be at home, let his son come up. "'If he has no son, or his son be out, let his wife come. "'If no wife or son be found, let a daughter, a nephew, a niece, "'an uncle, a cousin, or some relation of some kind, "'and especially let each or every of them come directly, for I have an infinity of orders to give. The spirit of hurry is upon me, and let the whole inhabitants of the manor and all their horses work as hard as they will. They will have great difficulty in doing what I intend to have done within the time I shall allow. Now, my dear Mrs. Grimes, don't stand and stare, but send for the steward as I tell you. You, Matthews, go and see what is wanting as far as you can judge, in the butlers, cooks, and housekeepers' departments. I know there is plenty of wine in the cellar, and I can see from the window that there is mutton at the door. These last words were addressed to Mr. Hargrave with a slightly sarcastic smile, and she then added, laughing, I intend to sleep here tomorrow night with all my household. Mr. Hargrave shook his head, saying, I scarcely think you will find that possible, considering that not a single bed in the whole house has been slept in for many years. "'Do you pretend to believe, sir,' asked Lady Anne gravely, "'that anything is impossible when a lady wills it? Let me tell you, it shall be done. 
I will make the gamekeepers into housemaids, the shepherds into scullions, the steward into an upholsterer, and the labourers of the land into kitchen-maids, laundry-maids, dairy-maids, and housekeepers. Do you suppose that I, who never was contradicted in my life, will be so on my first visit to my own castle? But to tell you the truth, my dear Mr. Hargrave, I trust more to a whole regiment of servants of mine who are coming down from London, and to two tumbrils of London ammunition, than all the auxiliaries of Northumberland. Thus she gaily went on till the steward appeared in haste, with that half-dogged, half-plausible look which a man puts on when he is suddenly brought into the presence of authority, which may demand an account not very easy to be rendered. He bowed low to Lady Anne, and even lower to Mr. Hargrave, but Lady Anne attacked him at once about the sheep. "'Whose sheep are those, Mr. Blunt?' she demanded. "'And how came they to be where they are?' "'Why, you see, my lady,' answered the steward, evading the real point of her question. "'The rest of the park is reserved for the deer, and I thought your ladyship would not like it to be meddled with.' But Lady Anne was not to be put off, and she demanded, "'But how come they to be in the park at all, Mr. Blunt? I thought the whole of the park was reserved for deer.' "'Why, so it used to be, my lady,' answered the steward. "'But, you see, my lady, I just thought it would be clean waste of good feed not to have a few sheep in.' "'And how long has this been carried on?' demanded Lady Anne. "'Why, I can't say, my lady,' replied the steward, not having the books handy. "'And to whom do they belong?' demanded Lady Anne. "'Why, for that matter, they may be your ladyships, if you like,' said the steward. "'They are not that dear of the money.' Lady Anne burst into a violent fit of laughter at the man's pertinacious evasions, so gay, so light-hearted, so good-humoured, that, joined with the shrewd glance of her eye, it quite upset good Mr. Hargrave's gravity, and utterly confounded the steward, who clearly perceived with no very pleasant feeling, that she saw through him to the very backbone. Waving her hand to stop any further explanation, she said, "'Very well, Mr. Blunt, very well. I have not the least doubt that they are very excellent sheep, and that you have very excellent reasons for everything. But I think they are out of place in my park, and therefore I must beg that you will have every one of them removed before noon to-morrow. The whole of the fences which you have planted taken away,' and every vestige removed which your woolly tenants may have left behind. The ground must also be rolled with a large roller. I should desire also to have the carriage drive, from the side both of Belford and Wooler, rolled likewise, the branches which overhang the road trimmed away to the full height of the top of a carriage, and some gravel put down in those deep ruts at the bottom of the valleys between this and the great gates. Moreover, you will be so good to send up all the poultry, eggs, and butter which are available, and direct the gamekeepers to bring up all the trout they can catch. They must also shoot a buck, and see for a leveret or two. Of course, the poultry yard is well stocked, as the farm makes such a large item in the accounts. All that I have mentioned must be done before tomorrow night, as I am about to take up my residence here to-morrow, and expect friends during that evening, or the morning after, who will stay with me for some days. The park paling on each side of the gate, too, must be mended, 
and a new lock put upon the gates themselves heaven preserve us my lady exclaimed mr blunt it will be quite impossible to get all this done before to-morrow night i'm very sorry to hear it replied lady anne for it must be done and somebody must be found to do it so if you cannot accomplish it i must oh i didn't say i couldn't accomplish it my lady only it'll be desperate hard work and there is hardly time i'm very sorry to hear that too replied lady anne for there will be at least forty other things for you to do in the course of the morning and they must all be done too you will have the goodness to collect all the work people in my employment here at the castle by one o'clock i have a note of how many they consist of and moreover i should like to have all the active men in the neighbourhood of whatever professions they may be here at the castle to help the others that is all for the present i will give further directions to-morrow stay mr blunt you have of course guinea-fowls at the farm and young ducks but no guinea-fowl said mr blunt and young ducks according to his account were never to be had in that part of northumberland before st somebody's fair the name of which he mentioned but i forget lady anne shook her head guinea-fowls must be found she said and you must make some young ducks if you haven't got them plover's eggs of course you have plenty of plover's eggs mr blunt looked aghast but he did not like absolutely to deny the fact and therefore replied they have some over at wooler my lady but they don't come down here then send over to wooler for all they have got said lady anne and with these orders she dismissed him now mrs grimes she said turning to that good lady who had been standing by in a state of great consternation you will have the goodness to leave all the windows open till sunset to spread out all the beds upon the floors of the rooms to brush the dust off all these hangings chairs and pictures to have all that green removed from the steps to make the cobwebs disappear in different directions to have large fires lighted in every bedroom and in the principal sitting-rooms and to let me see the house in complete order when i arrive to-morrow now mr hargrave she continued i have tired out your patience let us drive back to belford and you matthew stay here and see that all is done as i have directed you know what i want yes my lady replied the man and hurrying forward he opened the door of the carriage as soon as she and her old companion were seated lady anne leaned back on the cushions and laughed i have given them enough to do i think she said am i not an excellent housekeeper and woman of business mr hargrave i was only afraid of making some mistake and asking for some bird or beast in june that does not come to england till november i am afraid said mr hargrave that they will never be able to fulfil all your orders in the time but to give them was a very fair punishment for the neglect perhaps i might use a stronger word which they have shown it is the only punishment i shall ever inflict replied lady anne for as you say if masters and mistresses choose to neglect their own affairs how can they expect that others will take care of them but now listen for i have got a long story to tell you which with all the questions you intend to ask and all the answers i intend to give will just occupy one hour and a half and by that time we shall be at belford End of chapter 29